Today we are here to talk about the marketplace of democracy. Apparently there is an election coming up pretty soon. I haven't really been paying much attention to it. Perhaps you guys have. Uh, but I think it's, it's, it is uh, pretty big news. And uh, timely enough, we have a book that uh, has just been published by the Brookings Institution and co-edited by our two speakers today. We do have copies of this book available if you're interested in picking one up. We do have a few complimentary copies that we can offer you. Just see a Cato staffer outside by the table there, and we should be able to set you up with one. Our first speaker today is Michael McDonald. Uh, Michael is a uh, current professor at George Mason University. Uh, he is also a postdoctoral fellow at, or he was a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard University. He holds a PhD from the University of California at San Diego, and also holds a BS in economics from uh, Caltech. Uh, he's previously uh, an election assistant, election assistant commission. Uh, Previously, uh, excuse me, served on the Election Assistance Commission and was a guest editor at the uh, at State Politics and Policy Quarterly. Apologize for that. Uh, with that, I'll go ahead and turn things over to Michael McDonald. This is the uh, bait and switch part of this, where we start with Cato, but now you're going to get a little Brookings. Uh, I, this is a joint project between the Brookings Institution and the Cato Institute. And it's an interesting, uh, you know, kind of an odd mix of, uh, of two institutions that would be interested in this. Uh, and I think that's what attracted a lot of people uh, to the project in, uh, in the first place. And we had uh, several uh, foundations that supported our work, and we were very grateful for them. And it's a long list, and I won't go through all of them here. Um, and so uh, John and I talked about this project about a year ago. And we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could uh, get some of the leading scholars out there to sit down and think through uh, all of the pieces of the puzzle of how we get an election outcome? And we'll wrap it into this problem of competitive elections. And we'll have everybody sit down, have a conference, which we had back in March. And we'll have a, an edited volume, which we uh, just was came out about, uh, oh, about a month ago now. And... Um, and uh, we'll disseminate it to, to people. And so here we are doing that sort of dissemination to you. And so uh, I'm going to present to you uh, kind of an overview of what some of our authors um, found, some of the research that they did, and a few slides that will be interesting for you, I hope. And, uh, and then uh, I'll talk a little bit about what my contribution to the project was, which was about redistricting. It's something that I've worked with quite a bit, um, even with uh, uh, members on the, on the Hill as well. So here's the book. Once you go outside and get a copy of it, you know, you'll be able to put it up in your uh, bookshelf. You know, it makes a nice Christmas present, so uh, go get more of them. Um, so we had a number of authors look at uh, the state of competition in American politics. And uh, we had, uh, for example, Jerry G Gary Jacobson from the University of California, San Diego, uh, looked at congressional elections. And if any of you are familiar with him, uh, Gary really is the leading uh, scholar on congressional elections uh, out there. And so um, basically he was looking at this uh, uh, chart here, which is um, if you go back to CQ, you can see the number of races that they called competitive. And what happens usually, this is 1982, you get a, at the beginning, following a redistricting decade, you get a high level of competition. And then it, as things sort of progress along and as people become familiar with their districts and, and things get sorted out, competition declines during that decade. 
Uh, and then it pops back up again because everybody gets shuffled around into a new district. And so you see competition pop up. And uh, you know, when it was a little bit high in 1994 because of the, um, the swing that year. And it was high in 96 as we had a, a kind of a um, the sophomores that were vulnerable in some of the uh, newly gained seats for the Republicans were um, competitive as well. But then we saw the usual trend up to 2000. And what I think myself and many other people who look at redistricting and, and study American elections are concerned about is that between 2000 and 2002, we didn't see this uptick again in competition. Instead, we saw a decline from 2000 and 2002. And uh, when we got to 2004, uh, it went down even further. Now it's popped back up again as we've gotten a national swing. Uh, but it's still unlikely that it's going to be, uh, we're not talking about 103 competitive districts in this uh, election. So the, the underlying dynamics change a bit, and I will talk about that a little bit more um, when I talk about redistricting. Uh, we also had a group of scholars from Rochester and the University of Florida uh, and MIT uh, look at uh, state legislative uh, elections. And we don't really know a lot about competition in uh, contemporary state legislative elections. The data is diff difficult to gather. Um, would be nice if the U.S. Election Assistance Commission actually collected all of the election data out there and we had a central repository for all this, but we don't. And so uh, this group was working on a different, uh, another related project collecting this uh, information on state legislative elections. And so we have some um, percentages here that very, very much mimic what you see in congressional elections. Between 1992 and 2002, we see a high level over 90% um, or so in different sorts of districts. Unlike your congressional districts, you have multi-member districts in state legislatures, and you have single-member districts, and you have upper and lower chambers as well. And so you get an odd mix. But um, the, this, is, this line is for the single-member lower chamber. This is for the multi-member uh, single uh, lower chamber districts. And then this is for the upper chamber districts. We're above 90%. It's very similar re-election rates as we see for the U.S. Congress. Um, open seats, because maybe that's where the um, potentially uh, where we're seeing the lack of competition. You see 30% uh, or less this uptick uh, in 2002 uh, following the uh, the redistricting as people got shifted around uh, did increase. But if, if you look back at those incumbency re-election rates, that was uh, unaffected um, by what was incumbent pairings and things like that. And then if we look at competition in terms of uh, uh, percent of seats won with less than 60%, which is a very generous uh, measure of competition, this is 40 45%. We see uh, very few. And the reason why we look at 60% is because if you really go down to 45%, uh, the numbers are so low you don't get enough variation here to do any sort of meaningful analysis. So they do some analysis on that as well. Um, primaries uh, is another uh, area that we have very little information on, as it turns out. Uh, uh, the data are, again, not collected centrally. And so uh, what a group of uh, MIT scholars did was go out and they collected information on primaries for congressional primaries and for uh, state uh, statewide primaries, like governor's elections and so on. And 
primaries, they, they actually collected this data going all the way back to uh, the innovation of primaries in the uh, 1910s. So they, they took a long view on primaries. And primaries, it's interesting, too, is that uh, initially people thought that this was going to be the way to break the, the power of machines and we we're going to get competition and we'd have voter choice in primaries at the very outset. So it was kind of framed in those sorts of terms at the very beginning. And we see this is for the U.S. House. This is for the statewide offices. And you see that primary competition was high, relatively speaking, uh, again, with this very generous measure of 60% or, or, or less um, being a competitive election, um, we see upwards to 50% of the of elections in statewide ele elections primaries were competitive, and in the congressional you had about 25% or so. And over the decades, as we've moved uh, further on along, uh, we've seen a decrease in competition in primaries as well. And some people who say that, well, there's not a big problem with the lack of competition in general elections because, look, there are the primaries out there and, and we have this choice in the primaries. What this research establishes is that primaries are not um, a substitute, really, for general election competition. We've seen the same sorts of declines in primary elections as we have seen in general election um, elections. We also asked a couple of scholars at the University of Maryland to look uh, at uh, the distribution of campaign donations. And the idea here was that um, we often frame competition in terms of votes, and perhaps we ought to look at it in terms of the donors and who's uh, donating money. And these are going to be fun slides for you, I'm sure. This is a, um, a density of the Republican contributions uh, to uh, the Bush campaign in 2004, and this is by um, uh, uh, by county. So the the darker colors are more donors, essentially more money that's being uh, given to uh, the Republicans. And uh, if you look at the Democrat, what's interesting is it's you get the same. I don't know if I can do page up here, um, let's see. Yeah, it oh, there we go. Um, if you look at it, there's not a lot of change there. <laughs> yeah? and, the, and the reason is it's where the money is. So um, campaigns go raise money where the money is, not surprisingly. So there's a lot of campaigning that's going on in New York and uh, in Los Angeles, uh, at least in terms of raising fundraising campaigning. Uh, and, uh, and what I guess this might be a little bit of good news here, is, which is that uh, – it forces candidates to go and, and visit these places where, in an election, New York and Los Angeles uh, are not in competitive states in the in the presidential election. So, it at least gives an opportunity for candidates to be in these states and uh, and at least have some appearances and try and interact with the voters where otherwise they would not be. Um, uh, you would not see them in these states normally. You'd see them in the battleground states. So, up to this point, we've been talking about kind of overview of where competition is. And the, the other side of the coin is, well, what's the process? How do we actually get a competitive election? How do you get an election result? And so um, a very naive sort of way of looking at things is to say, gee, there's a national swing towards the Democrats in this election, and that means the Democrats are going to take control of the House and Senate because they're going uh, to win all these votes in this election. Um, but we know 
that it's a much more complex sort of system out there. Uh, the national mood gets filtered through districts and how Republican or Democratic the districts are. These districts are changing over time, over a decade. Um, we, we know that candidates make decisions on whether or not they're going to uh, contest an election based on what they perceive to be the possibility of being able to win. Some of that's coming from the district partisanship. Some of it's coming from whether or not there's going to be an incumbent in that seat and whether or not there's a scandal that's associated with that uh, incumbent or, or any other sorts of factors that might be um, involved in, in how strong that candidate, that incumbent is. So you get candidates, uh, uh, whether you get a strong challenger to an incumbent or if you have an open seat and two strong uh, people running against each other, it's going to be dependent on these other factors. And then their ability to raise money is going to be predicated on their quality, but also on this national mood. And, and then we get the outcome that's going to be affected by all these things. So it's a much more complex system than you would get from just the straight national mood to election outcome. And when we think about reforms that might affect uh, competition, uh, we can think about redistricting affecting the partisanship of the districts. We've got term limits, which kind of fell out of fad, but you know, um, they're still around. There are states that actually have these at the state legislative level. And so that will affect whether or not you're going to have an incumbent, certainly, in the, in the race. And we have campaign finance laws uh, affecting uh, decisions of candidates to run, whether or not they're going to be able to uh, be financed, perhaps, by a state through a clean elections law, like in Arizona or Maine or if, they're going to, if the incumbent that they're going to run against is going to have a little bit less money because they're going to be constrained by those laws. And so you might get candidate uh, quality out of that. And of course, it's going to directly affect the amount of money that these candidates raise. And all of that's going to affect the election outcome. So with that in mind, we um, had a number of people look at the election system. And I won't go through all of their, uh, um, their research, uh, but uh, in detail, like I did with the other general, the other statistics, but we had uh, Nate Persley from the University of Pennsylvania look at the legal framework, uh, especially in light of the LULAC decision and the Texas redistricting and the um, Vermont campaign contributions limit case. Uh, and what was really interesting there in the Vermont case was that uh, the, uh, the Supreme Court uh, really looked at competition as being one of the reasons why they might um, overturn the law there. And I, I believe John will speak on this uh, further uh, when he talks about campaign financing. Um, redistricting was my contribution. We had uh, a couple of scholars look at term limits. Uh, we had people look at campaign finance, specifically looking at the public uh, um, financing. Uh, and we had two sets of scholars that did that. We had Paul Hernson up at Maryland uh, look at minor parties. And we had John Matsusaka out at uh, the University of, um, actually he's at USC, so I gave, gave him the wrong uh, uh, affiliation there. But anyways, he looked at initiatives and what are their effects on competition. Um, and here are the general findings uh, from all of this research is that competition varies among levels of office. Uh, we actually see these gubernatorial elections are the most competitive elections that are out there. And um, uh, I, it appears to be that it's because that these elections are non-ideological. They're about filling potholes and building roads. They're not about um, the ideology that might permeate um, here in, in D.C. And so it's more about competence. And so you can find Republicans representing Massachusetts and uh, Democrats representing Montana uh, in gubernatorial uh, offices. 
And so, so we see that, but that's really only where we're, the only place we're really seeing high levels of competition. Everywhere across the board, we're seeing low levels. Um, and so, but there is kind of a caveat on this, or, or a, a recommendation that we might make, which is that if you're going to adopt a reform, you should think about tailoring the reform to the office that you're looking at, because not all elections are the same. And so it's going to affect a gubernatorial election differently than it's going to affect a congressional election, differently than it's going to affect a state legislative election. Um, we've seen that uh, reforms can have seemingly perverse effects on competition. Um, these clean elections uh, laws, for example, if uh, they encourage candidates to what clean elections are, uh, and John McCain has really been the champion of them here in the Congress, is um, their public financing of elections. And Arizona and Maine have them. Uh, Connecticut's going to move to them in 2008. There was a proposal, I believe, in uh, Vermont uh, to, to look at uh, uh, fi financing the congressional campaigns um, publicly. Um, and so what these uh, these uh, these laws do is they encourage candidates who really don't have a chance of winning to run because they don't have a chance of winning because the district's over overwhelmingly stacked against them in some way. And so or why I say it's, it has a perverse effect on competition, if you look at just margins of victory, you've got candidates who, who don't really have a chance of winning running in elections where we would see no uh, candidate uh, running previously, and so the margins in these elections, if you just look at margin of victory, you'd see that they're actually, the margins are increasing because you've got these candidates who are running. Um, but when we look at overall levels of competition, like percentages of, of races that were competitive, we do see increases. And so it's just, uh, you know, it's always possible to lie with statistics, and here's uh, another example of that uh, in some ways. Um, and then you have reforms can create perverse incentives, and this is interesting as well. The term limits, if you have a vulnerable incumbent, but they're going to be term limited out not this election, but the next election, candidates will, quality candidates will say, well, I just have to wait one more election, and it's going to be an open seat. And so you actually find this kind of perverse incentive that's built into term limits where uh, uh, vulnerable incumbents may not be contested when they're vulnerable, and people may just wait until the seat opens up. And so you can have these kind of odd uh, relationships uh, that uh, pop up here. All right, so reform recommendations. Thinking back to that, that chart I showed you, that kind of flow chart of elections, um, people will say that, well, if we just fix campaign financing, we're going to fix the whole system. If we just fix redistricting, we're going to fix the whole system. And really, if you have a deep understanding of the way in which elections work in the United States, you know that that's a naive assumption. It, the, the election has to be firing on all cylinders. The electoral system has to be firing on all cylinders in order to have at least a modicum of uh, competition out there. So there's one reform in itself, isolated, uh, will not solve everything. And it needs to be a part of a package of reforms. Um, for people out in the states, and I've worked with uh, reformers in California, the governor's office out there, uh, with the Reform Ohio Now uh, group in, in Ohio, and uh, with uh, the people down in Florida uh, that have been, tried to put redistricting initiatives uh, on the ballot. And um, uh, the thing about this is, is that uh, you really may only get one chance to get this right. It's a um, Perhaps we'll get lucky again in Ohio and in California and get something further, but it's difficult to put initiatives on the ballot to, to fix these sorts of things. And so um, it's important then, rather than flying blind, 
uh, which is what often I've discovered these uh, reform uh, reformers are doing in these states. They, they're, they're working on intuition. Uh, it's, it's important to really think it through the reform and get it right. And so uh, since you only get that one chance, choose wisely. Uh, and then another thing that, especially working with uh, these reformers, uh, I've found is that um, if you've got an initiative and you make it very complex, voters are just are just conservative in nature, and they're just going to say no, just because it's 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 so complex. And so, um, if you're going to have an amendment, you've got to make it simple. And the best way to do it is to have a, a kind of a, a mix of constitution and uh, statute working. And that's actually how uh, states like Washington have their redistricting commission. They, they have a very simple constitutional design, and then they fill in some of the blanks with state statute. And so um, this will make it more palatable to, to voters, for one, but also provides flexibility. Uh, unlike w when I was working uh, anecdotes uh, with uh, the Reform Ohio Now uh, group who wanted to put the redistricting initiative on the ballot uh, in Ohio, um, they were just dead set that they were going to have this formula that defines a competitive district, and that was what they wanted to put into the state constitution. And I told them again and again, look, 40 years from now, there could be a significant third party contesting elections in Ohio, and all of your measures are going to be screwed up at that point because they're not going to take into account uh, the changing uh, demographic or uh, political nature of Ohio. And, but they wouldn't listen to that. And so if you, if you really want to do it right, put in a reform that's going to uh, be flexible for the future. Um, now, uh, on redistricting, and I've, I've given you a, a few hints on this, um, and where I'm going right now with the research. Uh, what we've seen, let me give you a broad overview uh, first on redistricting. How much more time? Five more minutes. Okay. So, see, most of you have stopped eating, so I... Yeah. Um, all right, so five more minutes. So on, on redistricting, uh, we've seen in the 1990 round and in the 2000 round of redistricting, by any measure of which you want to look at the, um, the number of competitive districts in terms of, say, the presidential vote in those congressional districts or those even state legislative districts, we've seen a decline in the number of competitive districts. And we're actually at a very low number right now. In fact, we're so low, and I think this is what's going to be most interesting to you, is that um, we need a significant swing towards the Democratic Party in order for the Democrats to take control of the House of Representatives. I've estimated at 7.5% national swing towards the Democrats. The, um, some other scholars have, have, are a little bit more generous to the Democrats and think it's about 6%. Um, but anyway, in any case, it's a large swing. Now, we have had these swings in past elections. We've had them in 1994. We've had them back in, uh, in previous elections, 72 and others. So it's it's not without precedent to have a swing of that magnitude. And it, this could be an election year that has that magnitude. But what's interesting is that we have so very few competitive districts out there that when the tide sweeps across, if it is a big tide, um, what it's going to do is it's going to capture a large number of, of districts that are marginally competitive. And that's when things become interesting, because we don't really know. All of these pundits who are out there and, and the, the election handicappers really don't know what happens when we get out into this this realm. It's been over 10 years since we've had a national swing that goes that far in, in one direction. And so when we get out there, we don't know of these districts that are out in kind of the, the marginal 
competitive range for the republicans how many of those seats are going to fall it could be just a few and it could be that it's even possible to republicans will retain control of the house or it could be a large number will and it could be a huge swing because there are a lot of republican districts that are sitting out in this range that are just beyond what we normally can view as a competitive district but that's the interesting thing here and whether or not we get this large swing a lot of time has to pass between now and the election and so it's it's i don't think it's guaranteed that the democrats will take control though i would you know for you who are republicans staffers in the hell i you know yeah get your your resumes ready maybe i mean i would be backing banking at least on the possibility i think in the senate it's it's going to be more difficult for the, the Democrats for other reasons. But uh, in any case, um, um, that's what we're looking at. And uh, what we're doing is uh, currently what I'm doing on this research is uh, looking at down at the state legislative level. We really don't know what happens in redistricting at the state legislative level. Uh, we know a lot about what happens in Congress uh, because that data is very accessible to us nerdy political scientists. But when we get down into um, the state legislative level, uh, if you think it's difficult to collect d uh, data on congressional elections and congressional primaries, collecting data on state legislative um, districts is very difficult. And so um, I've been doing that. I've, I've been calculating presidential vote in state legislative districts. If any of you happen to be from any of these states and have connections for me, I'd love to talk with you about finishing off the 36 states that I've done. Um, and uh, we're going we're gonna to look at this, and we're going to try and figure out, because I, I think really the more interesting effects of redistricting do happen at the state legislative level, because there's only so many ways you can slice up the two districts in Idaho. And they do have a commission. It's interesting that they have that commission. But you, Idaho's Idaho. So uh, um, uh, when we look at the state legislative level, I think we're going to find some more interesting things. Um, and with that, I will hand it over to my partner in crime here. And I will. There you go. Okay, thank you. Let's see if I can just this down a bit so I have a place to put without destroying it. Thanks, Mike. Uh, my name, is, as mentioned earlier, is John Samples. Uh, I work at the Cato Institute. And besides that, you only need to know a couple of things about me, so I'll do a self-introduction, which is, the first one is, I'm not nuts. That is to say, I'm, you know, I have a PhD and I do research, and Mike wouldn't allow someone to co-edit a book with him that, who was nuts. Because Mike's very good. And by the way, Mike didn't mention, if you do a Google search on him, you want to do uh, find election statistics. Mike's got an outstanding site on the Internet over at GMU. You can just go over there, pull down uh, your state-level statistics very easily. Um, the second thing is I am the author of this book, as well as the co-editor of this one, The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform. I want to mention that because on October 4th at the Cato Institute, we'll be having a book forum for this book. And you can get information about that outside. And please come and have, uh, we're going to have several different people talking about campaign finance, which is what I'm going to talk about right now. Um, one thing, way to think about electoral competition is, of course, the way we normally think about it, which is between candidates and challengers, but also between the parties and who's going to control the House and those kinds of issues. 
There's another dimension, though, that I think is captured by the incumbent challenger dimension, which is there's competition between insiders and outsiders. And much of what this book is about is trying to talk about that rather than competition among the parties. That is to say how difficult it is for outsiders to challenge insiders and why that should be so. Um, Campaign finance has some issues to do with that, and and that's what I want to talk about. You know, one of the reasons people think campaign finance uh, lessens uh, electoral competition in the House or the Senate is the obvious one. If you look at the numbers, incumbent members outraise their challengers overall by astonishingly large numbers. In some years, six to one is the, the average. And over time, it seems like this number has been rising. Also, additionally, PACs, efficient, effective form of fundraising, though they're not not the most common, is nonetheless give mostly to incumbents, and people have looked at it and they've found that that edge of giving to incumbents begins exactly in the first attempt at re-election. So the second election to the House of Representatives for a member is the one where PAC members begin to give almost all the money to the incumbents. Uh, You can imagine reasons why PACs who have interest and are representing uh, those interests would have reason to uh, support people that share those interests with them. Uh, one, this has led some people to say, well, look, what we need to do is have spending limits that hold down the kind of advantage that incumbents have. And if we do that, then we'll make it easier for challengers and have more competitive elections. That brings us to the second point I want to make, which is why some people, myself included, believe that uh, campaign finance laws are often act as incumbent protection acts. Uh, spending limits, which have up until they they are in some sense unconstitutional, certainly spending limits alone passed by Congress or the states are unconstitutional. Uh, and the reason the reason they would act as incumbent protection is that if you for if just to take an example, if you allow a challenger and an incumbent House member, for example, both to operate an election with a $500,000 spending limit, which would be lower now than what would be competitive for a, uh, a challenger. If you give them both the, the same limit, who's going to win? Well, the incumbent's almost always going to win because what that limit doesn't take into account is that incumbents have what might be called brand name loyalty, brand name uh, uh, advantage. They've been in office, maybe some of your staff work, or certainly the staff work done in the district, acts as a kind of way of developing a personal vote or a vote uh, and loyalty to the members. So if you have the great danger of spending limits is that, in fact, they have the effect of um, making life harder for challengers. And Gary Jacobson was mentioned earlier. He's looked at the actual data and applied Uh, campaign spending limits to them and concluded that it would uh, have made things much harder for incumbents and would act as incumbent protection. The same thing you can think of as uh, contribution limits acting the same way. That is to say that contribution limits make it harder to raise money quickly. They make it harder to raise large sums of money. because you have to go to more people, you have to get them to give the money, and if you talk to people, you read it, you know, hard money is hard to raise. That's why that's not why they call it hard money, but that's that's the truth. Uh, or, but if you think on the other side, where you don't have a spending limit, like right now, for 527 groups, you don't have contribution limits, 
And Harold Ickey says, look, I'm going to go out and I'm going to raise $25 million. And he talks about seven people giving him that in the month of September for this upcoming race. Howard Ickes is a, Harold Ickes is a Democratic political operative and fundraiser, obviously. But he can put together $25 million in a month. Now, it's for a big national race, but challengers need seven, $800,000. You could put that kind of money together from a small number of people very quickly. So if you have to go to more people and have more of an organizational advantage, you would think contribution th- limits make things harder. There's other parts of uh, campaign finance law that, uh, particularly McCain-Feingold, that uh, complicate things. I mean, the Millionaire's Amendment in the House, many of you may be familiar with that. That is, if you do start raising your own money very, you know, from yourself very quickly, you have to disclose it, and it essentially changes the rules of the game. Uh, and disclosure itself may act as an incumbent protection act because, in fact, once you give money, it's disclosed if you give over $200 to a candidate. And if it's disclosed, then if you're giving the money and you're giving it to a challenger, you have to wonder, and I think many people do wonder, uh, if that might lead to problems. Perhaps not for a $201 contribution, but for $2,000 to a challenger's campaign, there is that possibility, and it may act to discourage contributions. Now, let's come straight to my topic against all of this. Why do people think public financing is a good idea? Well, it seems on the, um, the surface to be a good idea because you can imagine how it gets around all these problems, one of the notions being that it doesn't try to restrict people from participating in politics by contributions, but it seeks, that is, more speech, more political activity by subsidizing through various kinds of uh, public money um, the money people need to run for office. In other words, it is the simplest answer, which is to get, simply give more resources to everyone from the state, from, from government. And uh, the, the notion being that it could give, you know, you could give them the minimum needed to make challengers more competitive. Maybe not more. You wouldn't expect that they, they would end up with more money than incumbents necessarily. But they might very well end up with more than they have. And in fact, one of the strong reasons that thinking public financing might actually threaten incumbents is, um, well, how many times has the Congress of the United States passed public financing? Anybody know the answer? The answer is once in the last, uh, since the the 1970s, and that was a public financing bill that was passed with the knowledge that the president at the time, uh, Bush Sr., would veto it. And even then, they were very careful that if George uh, H.W. Bush changed his mind and said, ha, Congress, you have to live with public financing. I'm going to sign this thing anyway. They made sure that there was no funding mechanism for the public funding. In other words, you had the promise of subsidies without any source of funding. That says, and then the other thing I would say, you can easily find the reason why that is. The only other time you had a serious danger of public financing in that sense is 1972. Public financing reached the, uh, the floor of the Senate. And I looked at the numbers that were in that bill, and what I found were that what I found was that in general, for many many challengers, that bill would have increased uh, their relative financial position. So in fact, we have the actual behavior of incumbents that tells us that public financing might in fact uh, bring about more electoral competition. Now. And now you see things, in, uh, like in California, Proposition 89 is uh, uh, proposing to have public, full public financing. 
And in fact, you've had something like that in Arizona and Maine, and uh, you may have it in the future in Connecticut and maybe in California. So the question, though, is there's an empirical question here. It makes sense that it would increase electoral competition, particularly helping challengers, but does it in fact? And our book, The Marketplace of Democracy, has two empirical quantitative studies of that. The first one by my friends Jeff Milo and uh, Dave Primo uh, looks at gubernatorial races across the United States over a 50-year period. And just to cut to the chase, what they found was that public financing had very little positive effect in enhancing electoral competition between challengers and it also, by the way, had very little partisan effect. That is to say, neither the Democrats nor the Republicans, generally speaking, uh, benefited from it. One thing they did find, which is a little contradictory and a, a little surprising, is that uh, the contribution limits, they were looking at all kinds of campaign finance regulation, tended to enhance electoral competition. So we'll have to watch that. We don't know if that's true, but that, that would be an interesting change if contribution limits actually acted to enhance competition, but they found public financing did not. My other friend in this study, uh, Kenneth Mayer of University of Wisconsin, looked at the, the Maine and Arizona, the new kinds of public financing, uh, which are more complete, the so-called clean money. And by the way, if you're going to do this, don't call it clean money because it sort of tips people off if they're calling it that. What, and it also makes uh, current members angry because it implies that, of course, they're dirty, right? So you're not going to get that through. You're going to have enemies from the beginning uh, in the legislature. What Mayer found was that, in fact, in Arizona, with a, in a small number of cases, there's only been a couple of elections since Arizona uh, went to full public financing, there's been a reduction in incumbent re-election rates. It's a sharp reduction, and it looks like it happens exactly when the uh, public financing comes in. Now, one of the themes of this book, we should say, one of the themes in the history of campaign finance is when you have these kinds of changes in policy that affect campaign finance or redistricting or whatever that affects elections, they may have short-term effects, but people adapt very quickly to them. And I want to return to that in a, in a way about McCain-Feingold. But you know, people adapted to McCain-Feingold. There are, after all, lots of people, very intelligent lawyers and political operatives, who make their living doing this, and they are able to adapt to these. So all that by way of saying Mayer seems to have found that public financing and makes life harder on incumbents. But we're not sure that that will be a persistent effect. In fact, we've seen the other thing I should say is in talking about term limits, we saw some effects from them early on, but uh, some of those dissipated over time too. Um, the other, so the answer is, like so often in uh, political science, um, public financing doesn't seem to have big effects in general from our two studies on electoral competition, but it's possible that there might be persistent effects from, from place, the sorts of full public financing you see in Arizona and Maine. We'll have to wait, and we really won't know for a while. It's, it is, in fact, too soon to tell. I would mention one other thing about the Gimpel and Lee study that uh, Mike mentioned. First of all, if you ask for a book, it's got these neat full-color plates so if you don't cut it out and put it on your wall, but still, it's, that's what I would actually do with it. Uh, 
it gives you these kinds that you can, uh, right in the middle of the book, you can see the kinds of distributions. One of the arguments they make, though, that I think is interesting, that in fact the people that give money and where the money is drawn from, campaign finance, tends to be the same places geographically. So their argument is that if you look at that and think about the people who are funding the parties in New York, Los Angeles, and uh, and New York, San Francisco, and other places – uh, tend to come from the same areas, tend to live near one another, tend to come from the name, ne- same neighborhoods and cities, and therefore probably may well not be as polarized as the general political system seems to be. Now, I'm not sure that's true, but it's an interesting hypothesis, and it certainly is borne out by the fact the geographical area where money comes from. On public financing, uh, some of our essays go into these other issues. There's the trust in government issue. Uh, Milo and Primo find that trust in government tends to go down with public financing over long periods of time. That's odd. You would expect it is expected that the other uh, would go up. The cost of the program are an issue. Two hundred million dollars in California. Uh, people generally don't like to pay for it, and they don't like to pay for it because. They feel that it's a way of being forcing them to give money to candidates they may not care about or may downright dislike. Now, let me finish by talking about election 2006, and Mike has given you a general overview, and certainly this is going to be a very close one. Let me argue that um, while the Democrats have done very well in fundraising and have gotten better at fundraising in the last uh, five to six years, their congressional committees are doing well, They have a problem, though, as you may know, and the problem is the national committees are running about 20% of the Republican national committees by election day. That is expected that the RNC will outraise the DNC by 5 to 1, and that this could make a difference in a very close election because the Republicans will simply have more resources and because the Democrats have uh, decided to spend some of it on long-term party building. Let me suggest that McCain-Feingold may decide this election in November because of that. McCain-Feingold outlawed soft money contributions to the political parties. For a long time in the 1990s, the Republicans outraised soft money over the Democrats by quite a bit. But the Democrats drew even in 2000 and again in 2002. So really, if the world had stayed without McCain-Feingold, we have every reason to think that the soft money contributions to the Democrats and the Republicans would have been much larger than what the DNC and the RNC are raising, and that the Democrats and the Republicans would have raised about the same sums of money. And indeed, in fact, if you looked at those soft money contributions, the Democrats have proved very good at having donors who gave over $100,000 to their party during these elections. They got about two-thirds of all money from such contributions, such large contributions, You now see it in the 527 fundraising. Democrats prove to be very good in cultivating large contributors. In other words, let me say the Democrats voted 90% for McCain-Feingold in both houses, but the fact that it looks like the kind of financial gap they will face in about six weeks would not exist were it not for the ban of uh, McCain-Feingold's ban on soft money contribution. Which is not to say that the Republicans voted for it or the Repu- it's a, uh, a scheme of the Republicans because it's very hard to tell. And in fact, it looked like the Democrats were doing well under McCain-Feingold in 2004. 
But now, another final point I would make is, if you have to remember, if you ask where would if the Democrats had all that soft money, where would it go? And I think the answer is Connecticut, because Christopher Shays and Nancy Johnson and Rob Simmons are extremely vulnerable Republican candidates, and you would have a lot more money up there in those districts if uh, soft money still existed. If they pull through and the Republicans hold the House, and some of those are going to have to lose for the Democrats to take it, all of them will be able to thank, I think, McCain-Feingold for that. And on that point, I'd like to go to questions and answers before everyone has to get back to work. So please just raise your hand and uh, ask either one of us. It doesn't make it impossible, but it, uh, generally speaking, if you look, for example, at the California uh, bill, it uh, provides third parties with less money. Uh, they also have to meet certain kinds. It depends upon their uh, past uh, contributions and so on. Uh, also, they have to have enough organization to raise a number of e- even $5 contributions. For example, in California, the California bill you have to raise $25,005 contributions to get into the pu- to get at the public money for the gu- the gubernatorial race. Well, you've got to be a pretty you know the, the the number of parties that can do something like that are probably two in California. So there's the sort of organizational dynamic there, I think. At, at the state legislative level, uh, Arizona, the libertarians were raising money and indeed they uh, were actually being investigated afterwards because apparently uh, one of the campaigns spent all the public money on bar tabs. So, uh, 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 I, if you've ever been around libertarians. For, you know, for maybe some of these legislative races for the minor parties to, to raise the money that they need. But that's the Hernson chapter in the book. And the, the deck is really stacked against minor parties in American politics. It's not just the campaign financing. It's the single-member district system. It's many things that are stacked against uh, I guess a follow-up question. What, what do you think can be done to expand it to have a more uh, I would so, uh, on the campaign finance issue. I would say that um, even if you deregulate it, you would still have a. In other words, that people could raise uh, large sums, and libertarians did raise. Uh, Ed Clark in 1980 had substantial sums of money, to, and um, it's still very difficult. I mean, Ross Perot showed what you could do with. Uh, significant sums of money, but he also had a good issue, and he was uh, part of the national mood at the time. So the money itself, I don't think, is going to overcome these other barriers, which are significant. Ballot access is an issue, too. Ballot access, the dissolute systems organized, and so um, I think you'd need a fundamental overhaul to move to some sort of uh, multi-member districts to really have minor parties to have a chance to win the elections, and then once they're in office, then they can demonstrate their You would have to change every. I mean, change the system. Yeah, I know you said it was like you know, a really complex problem. You can't point to one thing and solution. But wouldn't you say that the most important thing maybe would be for more competitive election would be the end of redistricting? Or are doing better redistricting and, uh, and ending gerrymandering along partisan lines or incumbent lines? Because it seems like that's the, the main reason why you have districts where it's not even Republican. How's you know how's the Democrat going to win there? How's there going to be competition? Let me just say that. 
Mike is, he won't say this, but he, Mike is one of the top experts in the country on redistricting, so he's going to have to answer this. Well, now you've like put all this on weight on my shoulders. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I mean, I would definitely agree with you, and that's why I work with these reform organizations. And I also worked with Representative Tanner's office in crafting the bill that, um, that he offered. I think it has, what, 47 co-sponsors at the, in the moment. Um, uh, so uh, um, I do believe that, but in and of itself, there's only so much you can do. A part of it, I, I will recognize that uh, while you can draw more districts, I, as kind of another aside, I, I consulted the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission on the issue of competition. I was tasked with just saying whether or not a district was competitive, and they were required to do that under the state constitution, uh, Prop 106, that was adopted in 2000. And so I know that we can draw competitive districts, and we, I know that the, the elections that we held in those districts were competitive uh, in the state legislature and in Congress, but there are many other structural impediments to having competitive elections. So the Voting Rights Act and how it interacts with different states um, has a, a significant effect. The way in which the district the partisans are distributed throughout the state matters quite a bit. You can't draw a competitive district in San Francisco without drawing some really strange-looking districts that are like ribbons that are going down the peninsula. And so um, I think, but on the other hand, we're not talking about making every district competitive either, because that would be weird. You'd have a very strange system if in this election, say the, the Democrats won 51% of the vote, they won 100% of the seats. Then there would be no um, deliberation in Congress because we wouldn't have uh, the minority voice. So it's important to have um, uh, deliberative politics and have all of the voices being heard too. So you don't want to make it hyper-competitive, and so maybe you don't make every competitive district in San Francisco, but you can draw a modest number of competitive districts such that the, the Congress or state legislature will be responsive to the national or state swings in a given election year. And you look at California and the bipartisan gerrymanders that were taking place in California, the districts there aren't competitive. We're not expecting one of the state legislative seats to change hands in this election, which is just crazy if you think about, you know, this is supposed to be a big swing towards the Democrats in a Democratic state, and the Democrats aren't going to pick up any seats in the state legislature. So um, yes and yes and yes to your question, but with some caveats. Yes. As long as we're not held to it. Yeah. <laughs> I've been so wrong in the past on these things. But I, I do at this point think that the Democrats are going to take the House, but not the Senate. Um, I'm starting to think that um, Bush's approval rating has uh, turned dramatically um, in the last – he was the, the – the president was the greatest uh, millstone, I think, the Republicans uh, had in this race. He's still a problem because um, despite gaining significantly, but he's still in the basically in the low 40s on trend. You're seeing some polls that have him up in 44, 45 territory. Those are above the trend considerably. But the trend itself is strongly upward, and he could, if the trend continues, which is a big if, he could find himself uh, in the mid-40s by Election Day. And that uh, – Gary Jacobson, again, has done work that shows the presidential approval in most years is a big factor determining the total outcomes um, of a, in the House. And um, 
I think 45 plus the economy and uh, maybe the terrorism issue, which the Republicans are again uh, looking norm better on, um, might be enough to keep their losses down to five or six. I'll guarantee this. The margin in the House will be narrower than it is today. And that's, that's an actual... The margin in the Senate will be narrower than it is today. And that's going to have a lot of effect on your lives because uh, the party leadership is going to be even harder because those votes are going to be very close votes. And so I think that's one thing that you can expect out of all this. And I'll give the, for the Cato Institute take on it. I'll give the Brookings Institution take on it. Um, I, I look at those. Uh, um, I, I do think there's an improvement for Bush, but we've seen some changing uh, Adult population registration, right. uh, uh, registered voter models, which always gives you a small uptake for the um, Republicans. And we're also seeing, uh, you know, we just came out of 9-11. And so, uh, That's you know, big if. Bush can translate that uh, into something long term, I think, is uh, a big question. I don't think it's necessarily um, uh, true that that rally effect from 9-11 will persist throughout the election. That's actually an interesting point because, remember, the one thing you can argue about Bush is he had the Republicans very strongly, then he lost them. In his, he went from like 90% Republicans approved to 70%. He's back up in the mid-80s. And one of the things we didn't talk about in terms of uh, competition is competitive elections are elections that are hot, people are really wound up and interested and excited about them. So, you know, there's some evidence that negative ads – Polarization. Bush, the, the 19, uh, 2004 election was the most uh, competitive and largest turnout in 50 years. And George Bush was a very polarizing figure in that election. It was about him. So you have these other factors that uh, tend to, to be, and not all of them are sort of civics textbook factors, but they in fact have big effects on turnout and competitiveness. So if he can get the – one of the questions is, uh, will the de Republicans be as wound up as the Democrats are? Uh, the answer probably seems no, but they may not be as indifferent as it looked like they were going to be two, two months ago. Yes? We've seen uh, three states in the 1990s adopt uh, commissions. And the reform model here is a nonpartisan commission, as much as you can get that through some vetting procedures and some commissioners and some balance as well. Um, uh, a strict criteria that the commission has to use to uh, implement redistricting and uh, sunshine on all the actions that the commission's taking and public relations. That's the when I work with what they're behind. And um, we'll see uh, about this. Uh, I could go into detail. We could spend another hour talking about why things were so bad in California and Ohio. Um, I think it, some of it had to do with both sides not getting all the ducks in a row for support and being a very complicated bill and trying to do too many things at once. Um, but there will be a bill, uh, I, I mean, I expect an initiative, I should say, on the ballot in Florida in 2008. And I, I think that'll be a good test. Um, it's still possible, though I think uh, the prospects are dimming, that we may see legislative action. We almost got it in Ohio. I mean, we came very close to getting it there following a, a initiative in the state. So uh, I still hold out hope that in some cases that 
uh, given strategic considerations about who's going to control the process and not wanting to get screwed by the other party, that some might get reform out of some places like Ohio or elsewhere. Let me ask you a question following up on this. If the Democrats win back the House, uh, do you expect, or do better in state legislatures, do you expect uh, more now mid-decade and late in the decade redistricting in the states? Yeah, a, thanks for uh, asking that question. Very friendly question. I just wrote a, um, a law review article that's been in a law review on mid-decade redistricting. And, uh, you know, honestly, I think it's going to be isolated to a few states because there are some state constitutions that forbid it. So there are about 19 states out there uh, that forbid a mid-decade redistricting. If Schwarzenegger was defeated and the Democrats had control of the um, of the state government in California, they couldn't do it because there's already been a state Supreme Court decision in California that says you can't do a mid-decade redistricting in California. So um, the, where it would be limited to is where the states are permitted to do this activity and where one party controls the process. And they're really just, there are very few states. And even in the few states that the Democrats have had control of, like Illinois, New Mexico, and Louisiana, where they could have done a mid-decade redistricting, they just haven't been interested in doing it. Um, the, hmm. It opens up too much of a can of worms, and the, the party leadership within those states have not been responsive to, say, a delay in the Democratic Party is coming and trying to meet that. So um, I suspect on the margins we'll see a few instances like what's happening in the Northeast State Senate uh, district that's right now before the state Supreme Court. They cut up and split up a, a Senate district down there to lessen the chances of a Democrat winning. Um, we may see a few things like that, but I don't expect to see just, just massive things like we saw in Texas. Other questions? Yes. was it was really non-judicial intervention because the decision was really based on the Voting Rights Act and not on uh, saying mid-decade redistricting or partisan gerrymandering. That's what people thought we might get out of it, but that's not what the, the Supreme Court um, went in that direction. We, the Supreme Court in 1986 said that ger partisan gerrymandering is justiciable. But since then, there's only been one case in the state. Uh, these were uh, um, judicial districts in North Carolina that have been overturned on that standard. And really, the, the court doesn't have a standard on it. And without a standard, they can't apply uh, any, um, they can't overturn any of the maps as reported. And I don't see a standard coming forward. And so, at least on partisan gerrymandering, I'd say there's judicial inactivism. Uh, and for the Voting Rights Act, what we're going to see is um, we're going to see a series of con um, contests to this. Uh, now that we've gotten past the reauthorization. And so I don't even think LULAC really addresses what the new environment following the reauthorization. So I think we'll get some judicial activism there, activism, if you will, but that's just interpretation. We've seen this ever since the 1980s and 1970s on uh, racial matters. The one thing to say, the you mentioned the Nate Persley article in here is an interesting overview of, you know, one of the questions is, would the courts apply the Constitution or apply the law to make, to overcome a lack of electoral competition? And the answer is far from clear, but, you know, it's not impossible that in a decade or later that it, it could. And Persley goes through 
the various parts of the judicial doctrines or in sort of uh, incipient doctrines that might yet grow into a kind of judicial activism about this issue. No. Do you? I, I tend to think that it's going to go Democrat just because of the, the whole nature of the not being on the ballot and like Sheila, what's her full name? Right. You, you have to write down. Yeah, yeah. Please somebody spell it for me. And uh, it has to be spelled exactly I, as a write-in candidate. I, um, and, and what's interesting there, too, by the way, is that these ballot questions are really a matter of state law. And so you get differing law in New Jersey than you do in uh, Texas. And so there's been some discussion there'll be another uh, maneuvering in New Jersey and take Menendez off the ballot and put somebody else on the ballot because the Democrats might lose there. And uh, they can do that in New Jersey, but they can't do it in, in Texas because it's a different state law that, that's uh, regarding this. And the irony for the Republicans is they were the ones that that law into effect in Texas. So they could have had something different, but they decided not to. Yeah, federalism is very important in all these issues. Time, manner, and place still is with the states. Um, on that, I think maybe we'll wrap up today, and I want to thank everybody for coming. And again, October 4th at the Cato Institute on Campaign Finance. And contact either one of us. We'll be happy to talk to you or people who work in your offices about any of these issues. Thanks for coming. <laughs>